Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The latest on the Trump legal dramas. By the way, for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing, five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than... Andy McCarthy. Hey, Rich, how you doing? Good, you? Any day Bill Belichick gets fired every 24, <laughs> every 24 years. Get him in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I can say that the Jets are the ones cha- chased him out, right? Because they finally beat him on, um, on Sunday in one of the most dreadful football games uh, you could see. Um, yeah. But, you bad. know, 24 years in one – gig as a coach. I mean, that's like, uh, I remember in, in, when I was a kid, um, on television that I guess it was the, the Dick Van Dyke show in the sixties or seventies where, um, you know, there's a producer, the, the theme of the show is like, they're on a comedy show, right. And they write comedy show and the producer, um, is explaining to them that the show might be canceled and the show has been running for 10 years. And they said, you know, in television, five years is forever. You've had like two forevers, and mm-hmm. Belichick yeah. has had like five forevers. The way these yeah. uh, these coaching things go. So twenty four years, nine Super Bowls, six Super Bowl wins. I think every year that Brady was on the team, they made the playoffs. He had a great, maybe his best coaching performance was that year that Brady had that terrible knee injury where he still managed to get them 11 wins and get them into the mm-hmm. playoffs. So just, um, and he was a great defensive coach for the, for the giants and for the jets before, uh, before he got the head coaching gigs. I think he started, he had about four years in Cleveland and then 24 in new England. So just like an amazing legacy. Yeah. Not, and the not, thing not, he not loved more than anything else Thing, thing he loves nine Super Bowls, six wins. But the thing he loved more than anything else is beating the Jets' brains in. I mean, like mm-hmm. it, twice a year, he just loved to beat the Jets' brains in. Oh man! So all right, so got a, Trump, a lot of Trump legal drama. We have Boy. the immunity argument going on in front of this panel uh, of the DC Circuit. So where does this stand? You know, this is so. Um, there's so much going on here. I did an interview two days ago where, um, about, I I don't, I don't remember how many minutes into it, but, um, they were talking about the circuit court, um, case, which is what happened the other day. And about two minutes into the interview, the person who was interviewing me said, well, well, wait, I thought we were talking about section three of the 14th amendment. There's so many of these going on at, at the same time. The case, the one that uh, happened in the court of appeals for the DC circuit on uh, a couple of days ago. Um, and I think this is a very interesting substantive issue but with Trump in all these cases, I'm, I'm going to continue to argue that the timing is just as important as whatever the substantive issue is. So 
you know, under all of this all the time, no matter what you're having to say about the merits, um, you have to keep like one eye on the calendar because you know what his ultimate thing uh, is to stretch this out. A win for him is not necessarily winning on the merits of the issue. It's the delay. And the longer he can delay, the more he can argue that it's inappropriate to have a trial so close to election day and push it past election day, which is his goal, especially with these federal cases, because if he wins the election, then he's running the Justice Department. And if the law is followed, he wouldn't even have to pardon himself. He'd just have the Justice Department dismiss the case. So there's a lot of that going on. And I think Trump knows he's going to lose this round with this court. Um, But, you know, he's already plotting out the next moves and the next appeal because the the thing you have to keep your eye on even as you're watching what's going on in the court of appeals is that the case is frozen in the trial court until the the appeal is resolved because mm-hmm. I think we've covered this already but just to remind people federal law is you're only in one court at a time in a case so once an appeal is allowed then jurisdiction over the case transfers from the trial court, which in federal law is the district court, to the appellate court, which in, in federal court is the circuit and then the Supreme Court. So while this case is in the Court of Appeals, and ultimately if it moves on to the Supreme Court, then nothing can happen uh, that would affect the case in any way. Uh, in the trial court. So obviously what Trump is trying to do here, among other things, I've, uh, obviously he, he clearly wants to win the issue because that would be the end of not only this case, but it would be the end of uh, he'd be able to argue, depending on uh, how broad the ruling is, that uh, a lot of the allegations against him are invalid. Uh, but I don't think he expects to win that, but he does expect to be able to drag this thing out quite a bit. So he'll he'll lose and pretty swiftly with this panel, right? And then then he'll appeal to uh, for for rehearing on Bonk, and that will be denied. And then he has ninety days to appeal to the Supreme Court. That that would seem to be like a, a really healthy chunk of time. Well, yeah. Case. So I, I wanted to I, I looked at this this morning because I wanted to make sure um, I had these details right. So once the circuit rules, and there's the circuit could rule any time. Uh, the way the argument went, it looks like it's going against Trump, but I don't know that that means that they'll have an immediate ruling. It's a three-judge panel. They have to obviously agree on uh, what they're going to say. But I think we probably get a a, uh, a ruling from them next week. So the rules of appellate procedure say that he has 14 days to move for rehearing on Bonk. But the thing with that is um, – not only does the circuit skew against Trump here, it's seven Democratic appointees to four uh, Republican. Um, rehearing on Bonk is very, very rarely granted. And in fact, the rules provide that you don't even, the government doesn't even, if he appeals or, or if he asks for rehearing on Bonk, the government doesn't even have to respond unless the court asks for a response because these applications are so routinely denied. Uh, 
So mm-hmm. whenever the whenever the ruling comes out, I think he can stretch it out for two weeks, and then I think the circuit is going to just affirm whatever the panel did. I don't think they'll give him rehearing on bunk. I'd be very surprised uh, if they did. So at that point, um, he can appeal to the Supreme Court and keep the thing frozen, but he can't wait 90 days to appeal. So if he doesn't appeal instantly, once what's called the mandate comes down from the from the Court of Appeals, that is like the official formal ruling that the opinion, you know, that the opinion supports, which is usually a few days after the opinion comes out. Um, if rehearing on bank is denied, he if he doesn't appeal to the Supreme Court, the case goes back to Judge Chutkin. So I expect what he'll do, he'll he'll he may try to drag it out for a few days, but he's going to have to appeal to the Supreme Court. And then it depends on well, if he doesn't, they'll send the case back to her because right. she doesn't have to. So he's got 90 days to appeal, but she doesn't have to assume he's going to appeal okay. until he does. Right. She, so she could just say, you know, full, full steam ahead. Right. So I don't think he'll let that happen. So he'll have to appeal fairly rapidly to the Supreme Court. Um, and then it's a matter of that the case is still frozen then because the appeal is still ongoing. And then it's a matter of how long it takes the Supreme Court to act on it. Um, just to, to play it out ahead, as long as we're on this topic at this point. Um, my view of it, Rich, has always been that if it's Trump appealing, the court was would not take the case. I thought if... Um, when the government appeals, there's always a higher chance that the Supreme Court will take the case because of um, sort of mutual deference between peer branches of government. Uh, when the when the executive says to the Supreme Court, "This is very important. We need you to consider it," that's they have an advantage in getting the court's attention that the normal litigant doesn't. But it was it, it was not surprising that they denied um, the effort by Smith to expedite their consideration of the case because the court knew that the D.C. Circuit still had to weigh in, and the court always wants to get the opinion of the uh, circuit court uh, before it has to consider a case. So just because Jack Smith was in a hurry didn't mean the Supreme Court was. Uh, but now, I obviously, if the if the circuit were to rule for Trump, which I I, I be shocked if they did. Uh, I think if Jack Smith then appealed, uh, the court would probably take the case. I think if Trump appeals, they are not, I don't think they'll take the case. I think what they'll say is that um, we're going to let the ruling by the court of appeals stand. And if there's a trial and if Trump gets convicted and if there's a appellate process after that, then down the road, if he wants to raise immunity again, we can we can hear it then. But that would be their dodge to keep them out of uh, an unnecessary enmeshing of themselves in the uh, election process, which I think is the thing they want most to avoid where they can. It's going to be unavoidable in, in a number of places. So where are you on the merits of this question of criminal immunity? So you had a Supreme Court 
case, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, saying that a uh, former president had immunity from civil lawsuits for his official acts, didn't address the question of possible criminal prosecution, but I guess su- suggested or, you know, s- seems to suggest maybe the answer would be different on that, but it didn't pronounce. And now you have, you know, in these these oral arguments, this moment that was, wasn't great for Trump's side, where his lawyer was asked, you know, can can he drone his uh, or send the SEAL Team 6 official act to go assassinate his political opponents? And the, the lawyer said, yeah, yeah, he could, you know, you could, you'd, you'd need to impeach and remove them. And then you could may, maybe prosecute him, I guess he said, but that, that was, uh, t- took the argument to a logical extreme that makes it seem unsustainable. Yeah. So I'm writing about this for the weekend. Cause I, I want, um, I, I think it's important for people to know that this is the game that goes on in appellate, uh, argument. Um, I, I, I guess I was in the uh, Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office for almost 20 years. I probably argued, I don't know, three or four times a year. I was for a couple of years. I was a an editor on the in the appeals unit, so I, I spent a lot of time in the Court of Appeals and a lot of time, a lot of time. Used to be an editor. Used to be an editor. Yeah, yeah. That's why I. That, that's why I never volunteered. That's why I never volunteered. I never asked you for that job, because when I was at, when I when I became an editor in the appeals unit, um, the person I was replacing, who was an old friend of mine, who would actually um, second sat me on my first trial by uh, when I was a young pup, um, but she said to me, "The thing about this job is you're going to find out everything you never wanted to know about your colleagues." <laughs> and that turned out that turned out to be totally right. Um, and it, I thought the other thing that was miserable, by the way, just uh, apropos of nothing, was that the Court of Appeals always managed to like have their deadlines for us to file something be like July fifth, well, like the day after Christmas, where you know they're starting up again, but you have to be there working to crank the mm-hmm. uh, the brief out. So right. that was not my favorite. Um, couple of years in the office. And if I hadn't had a couple of cases to try, I probably would have put a bullet in my head. Um, But in in all seriousness, the, um, the thing that goes on in appellate practice is you bring like three of your colleagues in um, when you're getting prepared to argue. And if you're smart, you won't bring in three of your pals. You'll bring in at least one person who makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Um, because what you want is to be asked really tough, hostile questions. And the game is to think up, you, you take the logic of the position you're defending and the logic of the p- position of the other side, and you try to force the person to defend the logic in the worst case scenario that you can imagine. And this is the game that goes on all the time. And I think, you know, I, I, that was kind of the obvious thing that was going to come at Trump's lawyers. I think they should have been a little bit better prepared for it than they were. But I think if I'd have gone in there, I would have been prepared to say, let's say um, I committed a murder and my wife is the only witness. And if I, if they don't have my wife as a witness, this is a heinous, awful, terrible murder, but they can't prove it. 
Should we get rid of spousal privilege because it's a really terrible result in that case? What if I've confessed to my priest or to my lawyer? Should we get rid of priest-penitent privilege and attorney-client privilege because it works a terrible, unjust result in this particular case? The thing is, you can always come up with a worst-case scenario when you're defending a logical principle because the law, even though we aspire to logic, the law is not logical. The law is the product of legislation, which is the product of compromise. So we would like to think of law as rigorously logical. It's not. Uh, the law it reflects what can get enacted by a majority of the legislature at a particular time. And as a result of that, legal argument and, and the reasoning in court of appeals decisions has to be rigorously logical, but you can exploit a lot that's in the law because it's not the product product of logic. It's the product of compromise. So this kind of stuff is always available to do. There are always worst case scenarios. And the thing is, it's not how the, the principle that you're trying to defend necessarily works in a particular case, because you can always come up with ways it's going to be unjust in a particular. The thing is, Overall, is the net effect of it that it protects a principle or an institution or a relationship that we want to preserve as a, as a society. So trying to apply that to this case, yes, you can come up with a lot of things that um, it seems appalling that a president could get away with if you give him immunity from prosecution. But a couple of things. I thought it was very interesting that one of the parade of horribles by Pierce, who was the, the appellate lawyer who argued this on behalf of Smith, before he got to the um, the president who orders SEAL Team 6 to kill a political rival, which, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of assumptions there, like the United States military is going to take an order from a president that's illegal. You know, I, I mean, it, the, the, it's, it's very far-fetched. But the warm-up to that was, can you imagine a president- This is one of those things, Andy, where, where we go three months from now. Andy said this was far-fetched. It would never happen. And here we are. <laughs> SEAL Team 6 has taken the order. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, uh, we don't know if it's a day that the Secretary of Defense can be found to yeah, be in exactly. the chain of command to communicate the order. <laughs> but, but apropos of your point that you just made about whether it really happens or not, before Pierce got to the SEAL Team 6 example, he said, or imagine a president who sells a pardon. And I'm like, mm -hmm. did he miss the Clinton administration? Mm -hmm. That actually happened. And it's a good, <laughs> it's a very good example because the Bush Justice Department, Bush 43, coming in right after Clinton, makes the decision, and I was involved in some of these uh, investigations. We had one of them uh, in the office I was running in upstate New York at the time because there were a bunch of pardons, uh, and one of them involved pardoning um, a group that had gotten a, a conspiracy that had gotten convicted in a Hasidic hamlet in upstate New York, um, and the push was to get Clinton to pardon the four guys who had gotten convicted because that town um, basically block voted. If the Rebbe said, we're voting for this person, everybody voted. And they were trying to lock that down for Hillary's run for the Senate. 
So the issue was, was there a quid pro quo in connection with that pardon? Just like in connection with Mark Rich, he gave goo gobs of money to the Clinton Foundation and the Democratic Party and Hillary Senate campaign, and he gets pardoned, even though he's a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 list, right? So this is the interesting thing, because this is exactly the situation that Jack Smith portrays as the horror show scenario for the court. You have a president who has served two terms. So on his last day in office, he does these atrocious pardons, including one of them, which I regard as, as just flat out bribery. Now, you can't impeach him anymore, right? Because he's out of office and he's already disqualified from serving as president in the future. So it would be utterly pointless to try to impeach him. Therefore, if he can't be reached by the criminal law, he is, in theory, above the law. He's beyond any accountability for what he's done. Yet, the Bush Justice Department decided that the norm that we have, or had, uh, that, had yeah. that the opposition party, when it comes into power, does not use its control over law enforcement as a weapon against its political enemies. And this goes back to like, you know, what Barr used to talk about, about like, you know, meat and potatoes crime. What Clinton did was pretty close to a meat and potatoes crime, but Bush decided and the Bush Justice Department decided, I guess it was Attorney General Ashcroft at the time, um, but they decided that it was more important to preserve the norm than to prosecute the case. Um, I also thought it was a very, it would have been a very difficult case to win. Um, and, and that also goes to an issue that we're talking about here, which is um, what Clinton did, and this is the nub of what Trump is arguing here, what Clinton did was ostensibly legal. In other words, there's no doubt that he was exercising executive power, and there's no doubt he was authorized to issue the pardon. He didn't need to have a reason to issue the pardon. The president's pardon power is completely unreviewable. Um, and I think it's a classic situation where if a pardon is corrupt, especially if it's just a flat out bribe, this is for Congress to police. Um, because if you prosecute, what that means is you have subordinate executive officials, namely prosecutors, who are second guessing an action taken by the chief executive, which was within his authority to take. And the only way they can do that is by reading his mind, by imputing corruption into it. You know, Clinton has always said, I don't believe him, but this is what he said, that he reviewed the case and he thought that Mark Rich was not guilty um, and that the RICO was ridiculous and it was way overcharged. Um, now, in my office at the time, because this was our case, you know, what you're supposed to do with a fugitive is if he's got defenses, you tell him to show up in court and make his defenses. You know, you don't, you're not supposed to be able to go to the president and get a pardon, but the president doesn't need to follow the pardon practice. The president has complete constitutional authority to issue a pardon. And the reason this is so relevant to Trump's case is even if you believe as I do that he knew that he was advancing a bogus legal argument. Uh, 
and that there was not factual evidentiary support for his claim that the election was stolen. It's not in a vacuum inappropriate for the president to direct his subordinates to look into the possibility of election fraud. It's not inappropriate for the president to contact state and federal officials with respect to whether an election was on the up and up. All those things are within the president's power to do. And the only way that you could conceivably convict him, and this, you know, let's let's put aside the legal problems with some of the statutes that that Jack Smith has invoked. The nub of this is the only way Smith can convict Trump is by reading his mind. You know, if the president robbed a bank, you could say the act was illegal, right? But if the president's acting within the ambit of his executive authority, the only way he can be convicted of a crime is if a subordinate executive official is able to second guess the chief executive about what his motivation and intent was in exercising a power he undoubtedly has under the Constitution. And that's why this is such a tough case. You asked me before about Nixon against Fitzgerald. The interesting thing about, there's two interesting things about about this case, which will make it very interesting what what the Supreme Court ultimately does with it. Um, I think for all the reasons that we just um, talked about, and then the additional reason that you don't want the president worrying when he has to make weighty decisions that, am I going to be sued over this um, by whoever may be damaged by it? So the Supreme Court decided, looking at separation of powers, um, that the president has immunity from civil suit. But here's the problem. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president has immunity from civil suit. Mm -hmm. This was like the freewheeling pre-Scalia days when the court felt very comfortable legislating its policy preferences. And I happen to think that's the right policy. I don't think a president should be subject to legal liability for actions taken within the ambit of his authority. I think the Constitution's intention is that Congress is the check on abuse of power. There weren't even federal prosecutors at the time the Constitution was uh, was adopted, right? Um, so I don't think, you know, I don't think it was in the framers contemplation that the Justice Department or something like it would be the check on uh, presidential misconduct. I thought they I think they thought that would be Congress. And you, you obviously have the problem of who can second guess the chief executive, um, but you also have the, the problem of just as a matter of policy, we don't want the president worrying about lawsuits when he's making these decisions. Now, here, here's the thing. Today's Supreme Court, even if they thought that was the right policy, would they have reached the same decision that was reached in Nixon versus Fitzgerald? I don't think so. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. Um, because there's nothing in the Constitution that that talks about immunity for the president. You really have to weave it, and it's a very creative argument that's drawn out of separation of powers. So, they, but that that is on the books. It's been on the books since 1982. They're probably not going to disturb that. The question here is, do they build on it? And here we get to the other point, which is, in 1982, we had a norm 
against politicized prosecution, which was so strong that when the first occasion came up for it um, after 1982, the Bush administration wouldn't do it with respect to to Clinton. Um, in 1982, this this norm was strong enough that we had never had a prosecution of a president or a former president. And I think when the court said we're going to give the president liability from civil suit, um, but we think that if this was a criminal case, we might reach the opposite result. I think the reason they said that was because the criminal justice system had a lot more credibility for being objective and fair in 1982 than it does now. Um, yeah, so, so on, on this norm, uh, I, I went back and, and looked at this when there was this debate about whether Trump could be prosecuted during the Mueller, Mueller investigation. We said, uh, or maybe I looked back when, when these latest prosecutions started, but um, there, there was a question of whether Clinton could be prosecuted for the perjury you know, involved in the right. Monica Lewinsky affair. And um, when he was leaving officers, a debate about this. We just said, no, we don't, don't do that. You know, he, he got impeached. You know, he paid a political price. That, that, that's enough. And this norm is very important, but it's been totally breached now. But I also remember, I have not studied this immunity issue closely, but again, when it was, was, more, was a live issue back during the Mueller investigation, I actually read, Andy, I read the two, two OLC yeah. Uh, opinions, right? There's one in the Nixon administration, one in the Clinton administration saying you can't prosecute uh, a president, a sitting president. Sitting and the president. logic seemed fairly compelling to me. You, you know, you'd have a subordinate executive official basically with the power to uh, dethrone the sitting president. You know, what are you going to do? Throw, throw him in jail? And, and how does that work? You know, that's, that's uh, worse than being uh, impeached, perhaps, or, or effectively a kind of in, impeachment outside of the impeachment process. But I don't know why it would apply to a former president. Um, yeah, that 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 certainly that aspect or that logic doesn't apply to a, a former president. Yeah, I think that's that, that's right. That is the distinction between the current and former president. When when you're dealing with the former president, it's really a policy issue about incentives um, and uh, how does the current president act. If he knows that once he's a former president, he could be prosecuted or civilly sued, that's obviously a, a not as strong a claim as when you're the current president. Uh, and the pro the proposition is that the subordinate executive officials can second guess you, even though, as Justice Scalia uh, memorably wrote in Morrison versus Olson, that that special counsel case. In the Constitution, all of the executive power is reposed in the president. The president is the only official in the executive branch who has actual power. Everybody else is a delegate. Right. So it's kind of it, it's it's convoluted to argue that a subordinate official whose only power uh, it comes from being delegated by the president and who can be removed without cause at will by the president. How how such an official would have. The authority to second guess the chief executive to me is constitutionally yeah, nonsense. Like the president, in effect, prosecuting himself. Right, but to your point about the distinction between former president and current president, um, I think the 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 hardest um, question for somebody like me who holds the position that 
at least as a matter of policy. I can't locate this in the Constitution. I think as a matter of policy, we should not prosecute presidents for their official acts. That doesn't mean their official acts are good. That's not a way of saying anything the president does in in within the realm of his power is a good thing, like a you know, a corrupt pardon is a good thing. What we're talking about here is what is the the check on that, and I don't think it's it's prosecution. But I think the toughest question that a, that a court could have put to me on this, rather than this parade of horribles, is in 1974, President Ford pardons former President Nixon. Now, a pardon requires the president to offer the pardon and the person who is the recipient of the pardon to accept it. And the assumption of the pardon, of course, is that there is a possibility of prosecution. So Ford would not, I mean, you can say that what Ford was just trying to do in a decisive way was put a terrible chapter of our history behind us. But in the four corners of of that issue, Ford pardoned Nixon because he could have been prosecuted. And Nixon Mm -hmm. accepted the pardon because he understood that he could have been prosecuted. Nixon could have not accepted the pardon. Nixon could have just said, you know, look, I'm immune. You know, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't. He accepted the pardon. So are you going to argue that Ford and Nixon were wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they were. But um, I, I think Judge Chutkin relied on that in her opinion, and I think she was right to to do it. It's it's one of the more compelling uh, parts of her opinion, I think. And finally, we have other stuff we have to get to. But is it um, is it an official act when President Trump says, tells Mike Pence, Mike, you got to do the right thing, and uh, you got to delay or uh, uh, block this count? Is it an official act when he shows up at the ellipse and, and gives his speech. You know, he goes there in the beast and leaves in the beast. And um, it's a, a, a um, you know, a, a political speech, but uh, presidents give political speeches all the time. Yeah. So this goes, Rich, to a case that we talked about maybe two or three weeks ago, maybe right before Christmas called Blasting Game, which was decided around the same time that Chutkin uh, decided uh, the immunity thing, where what the D.C. Circuit is grappling with exactly is that, which is what is an official act. And what Greg Katzis, Judge Katzis, uh, writes in his opinion, not for the court, but a concurring opinion, um, it, it, I should say the majority opinion basically said, if, this, if you are engaged in office-seeking um, activity, that that's political, it's not official. But if you're engaged in office, if you're engaged in the execution of your duties in office execution activities, then that is official. And as Katzis points out in his opinion, it's not always easy to tell. So, for example, a president goes out to give a speech, you know, on the stump in a campaign season. In the middle of the speech, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm removing the secretary of state. Well, that's an official act. He may have done it in the middle of a campaign speech, but that's Mm -hmm. an official act. Does that make the speech an official act? Are we going to parse it like sentence by sentence? Mm -hmm. So I think this is very, it's very naughty. Um, Trump's position here is that everything he's been accused of, he thinks that he says there's about five categories of behavior, which involve dealing with Pence, dealing with Congress, dealing with 
uh, public officials and the Justice Department, you know, executive officials and dealing with state officials. He says all of those four categories are official acts, even if the overlay about the whole thing was the uh, was the election. The ellipse, he's willing to say, at least based on what the Court of Appeals recently said in his blessing game case, um, some of that may be political and non-official, and some of it may be official, but you may have to parse it. But Trump's overarching position is that virtually everything um, that happened in the indictment is part of his official duties. And what Trump's lawyers argued to the Court of Appeals this week when they had this argument was that if they find that Trump has some measure of immunity, it would be appropriate to remand the case to Judge Chutkin to have a hearing and make a decision about what acts are official and what acts aren't official. So if the if if this panel decides to give Trump anything, it could be to remand the case back to Chutkin to make that determination. But if they simply decide that he doesn't have immunity, there, there'd be no need to do that. All right. Let me do a quick plug for Enterplus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way to get instant and unobstructed access to all of our content and without annoying ads if you log in after you sign up. And most importantly, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. Sign up today, tomorrow, or the day after. Anytime really over the weekend would be <laughs> fine. So Andy, we also have... Uh, the uh, New York case r- rumbling on here. Uh, Trump yesterday recording Thursday morning, as is our want. Yesterday, there was a big dispute w- whether Trump would be able to make a concluding argument. The judge said, no, you're going to make a political speech. And you can't do it. And, and uh, Trump, Trump's lawyer says, you know, look, look, they're sh- shut, shutting them down, of course, because this process is, is so rigged. And here we are. So what's the, what's the state of play? So we're in week eleven of this uh, of this fiasco. They took some time off, uh, obviously, over the holidays, but uh, week eleven. And you know, it, this is so peculiar. But I think the bottom line is, you know, it's a civil case. He's got a lot of latitude. The judge does, Judge Engoron, uh, over how he handles it. But in my view, I don't think there's anything that even requires him necessarily to allow closing arguments. He could tell them to file a trial brief and put it in in writing. So given that he's got that authority, and I think the other hook he has here, Rich, is even though Trump um, did get called as a witness by the state at the conclusion of the state's case way back in November of last year, um, he didn't give the full testimony that uh, he would otherwise have uh, have given if it was his own case. Yeah, he was obviously called as a um a hostile witness by the state. Uh, he promised, or promise is the wrong word. He represented that he was going to be the last witness in the Trump case. And then they decided at the last minute not to call him. I'm sure what what it was was at the last minute, they the lawyers finally, after pleading for months with Trump, got him to say, okay, I won't testify. Um, but what, one of the things that Engeron could say is, you know, look, you could have testified, 
And then these things that you want to say in your summation would have been subject to cross-examination. You would have had to say them under oath, under, you know, facing penalty of perjury. And instead, what you're doing is skipping the testimony part and you want to have just, you know, rave about it in a in an argument and I'm not going to let you do it. So he's not going to let him do it. It's all I mean it's all theater anyway. The I think the the important thing that's happened in this case in the last week which I just think is just unbelievable. I wrote about this last week. Remember we talked about 250 million dollars in disgorgement? Apparently that's not enough. So um the attorney general Letitia James in her closing uh, submission to the court says that she thinks the damages are now 370 million Maybe in a case here. where there are no victims. Yep. They, they have an 11 week trial in which the state proves that there's not a single victim and where Trump calls a bunch of his business counterparties in the Trump case. And they all say they made money and they did business with them and they do business with them again. And she says, aha, so I guess we go from 250 to 370. I wonder how much it would be if they actually had a victim. <laughs> so Fannie Willis, we had this bombshell <laughs> filing from a co-defendant in her massive RICO case down there, and a guy named Michael Roman. And he alleges that Fannie Willis is having an affair with this married lawyer named Nathan Wade, who she appointed as a special prosecutor in 2021 on this case. So what, um, what, what's your take on the, the credibility of this allegation and, and how would it affect the uh, standing of, of the case? Well, no one has denied it so far. And, um, what the lawyer says in the uh, – th this motion is about 130 pages long, and I actually did read a good bit of it. Um, the lawyers say they have information from the divorce file, um, and apparently there's been more action from the wife of Nathan Wade in the last few days. So at least people are acting like um, – a a good chunk of this is probably true. I don't know if it's all true. Um, and they're not, they're not denying it. Um, you know, when Willis's office was asked, what they said is that she would respond in a formal sub submission. Mm -hmm. um, she's been pretty, um, she's been pretty glib about making public statements. Uh, so for her suddenly to be taking the position, you know, why not, we're not going to mm -hmm. talk about this. We'll discuss this in court. Um, that's kind of unusual. Uh, with her conduct here. So, you know, all the signs are pointing to, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, but we'll have to see how it, how it plays out. Um, the salacious stuff is aside, although, so, you know, some of it is interesting. Um, you know, the vacations, um, apparently, um, and, and let me just say where I'm going with this before I start. So, so people understand, I'm not just dawdling over these details. Um, uh, the the tart uh, point that's made by uh, the lawyers here is that if what they're alleging is true, Fannie Willis has committed federal criminal fraud and that fraud is a racketeering predicate, a RICO predicate in federal <laughs> law. So I mean, their ultimate point is like, if what we're alleging here is true, what she did is a lot more serious than what she's alleged that people did uh, in this case. Um, so- 
it's a very fishy thing. I mean, this guy, Nathan Wade, is an experienced lawyer, and he was a Cobb County, he was in a Cobb County prosecutor's office when he was a younger lawyer, but evidently, he's never tried a criminal case, or at least a felony case, uh, and doesn't have any experience in RICO, uh, which is a complex area even for criminal practitioners. Uh, it's not clear why this case would need a special counsel. Uh, Willis runs the biggest prosecutor's office in Georgia. It includes the city of Atlanta and a lot of the uh, surrounding area, including, uh, you know, in Fulton County. Um, they have an annual budget of $31 million. They have lots of lawyers in the, in the office, dozens of them. A number of them have experience doing RICO cases. So why they would need to bring in somebody from the outside is not apparent. Um, Willis went to Fulton County and asked for an infusion of additional funding because of the backlog caused by COVID. This was shortly after she became uh, the, the uh, district attorney. Uh, and she apparently tapped into that money to bring in this guy, Nathan Wade, as a, as a special uh, prosecutor. And she's paying him a lot of money. She is the number one person in the office. She makes two hundred grand a year. This guy has been paid close to a million dollars since he was brought on at the end of uh, 2021. So that's a, that's a lot of money. Um, evidently, she did not. There's no evidence, the defense alleges, uh, that she... Uh, notified and got approval from Fulton County, which law, the law requires in order to bring this guy on as a, a special prosecutor. He didn't file his oath of office with the court, which he's supposed to do before he starts acting as a special counsel. So that part of it, Rich, goes to whether there's impropriety in the instigation of the of the lawsuit, whether he was permitted to be in the grand jury under the you know, under the circumstances, if, if there were problems with his appointment. So that's, that's one part of their motion to dismiss. Um, the other stuff is about disqualifying Willis. What they're asking for is disqualification of Willis and Wade from the case. This money that she paid Wade, um, and this was before he even started acting on the case. Um, he, she pays him, and then they go off on vacations together. So apparently they've gone to Napa Valley, they've gone to Florida, they've gone to the Caribbean, they've gone on at least two cruises. Um, so the argument is that she is derivatively the beneficiary. She's paying him a lot of money and then she's getting the benefit of the funding. She, she pays him and then they go off on these um, uh, expensive holidays and, and the like. So the argument, obviously, is a, it's, a, it's a fraud that they told the state, we need this money because of COVID. She took it to pay a, 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 an unreasonably large amount of money to this lawyer who's completely inexperienced, and then she got the benefit of it. That's the, that's the theory. So uh, it's a pretty – it's an explosive allegation, and it's interesting that it's raised by the defendant, uh, Michael Roman, who raised it, who's like a minor defendant in the case. He's the one defendant – who the investigating grand jury did not recommend charges against, mm -hmm. and Willis and Wade decided to bring charges against them anyway. I wonder if they're 
I wonder if they're second guessing themselves on that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuti. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich. <laughs>